From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, Plaquenil Screening and Cost, Part 2. We know that Plaquenil is not stored in fat. It's stored in lean tissue. First this. If time and money were no object, you'd probably go to a lot of meetings. Not just ASCRS, but ESCRS, APACRS, AAO, Hawaiian Eye, and Winter Update, and you'd learn a ton. But money is an issue, and time an even bigger one. That's why I go to all of those meetings for you. Speak with the presenters you'd like best, and get them to distill their talks down to just a few minutes. You can see all of these interviews at no cost at the iWorld Replay website. Just go to ewreplay.org, E-W-R-E-P-L-A-Y.org, and enjoy. This is part two of my interview with David Browning about the cost-effectiveness of current Plaquenil screening recommendations. We pick up where we left off last time. Dave, the primary reason that you found for overdosage, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is, is that, uh, that, that dosage was being checked by the ophthalmologist based upon the patient's current weight rather than the ideal weight. There, there are two classes of uh, adjusted daily dosing problems. One is that you don't use ideal body weight. That, that's a well-known problem, and that leads to the problem, for instance, in the short, obese patient. Uh, we know that Plaquenil is not stored in fat. It's stored in lean tissue, and therefore, the appropriate dose to um, the, the appropriate adjustment to your dosing is the lean body mass, which comes from the patient's height. So, for instance, a person who's five foot three under the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute ideal body weight uh, table should weigh no more than 135 pounds. And if you weigh 160 pounds, you shouldn't divide the 400 milligrams of Plaquenil you take every day by 160. That has a lot of fat in it. You should use 135. That's going to give you a true adjusted daily dose that you can compare to that 6.5 milligram per kilogram per day threshold that's labeled as toxic. On the other hand, something that had not been discussed before this paper, and it came out of this, looking at this data, was that many patients with autoimmune disease are not fat. Many, in fact, are somewhat asthenic. And so in that case, you can't look at the height weight tables and use the ideal body weight if the person is asthenic. You have to use the actual body weight. So for instance, if you're 5'7", and you're allowed to be 153 pounds, according to the table, but you really weigh 130, it's the actual body weight that you have to use to come up with your adjusted daily dosing, not the ideal weight. And, and that raises the, another issue, which has not been discussed at all in the literature, which is ophthalmologists use about seven algorithms for ideal body weight. Um, and, and there is nothing that says which one is best, and they, they're not very close. At any given height, they may vary by 20 pounds. So the proportion of patients that you're going to be uh, labeling as toxic is going to depend on the algorithm that you happen to choose. 
And needless to say, there's going to be some uh, controversy about that. How do the current AAO guidelines compare to practices in the United Kingdom? In the United Kingdom, the committee of the Royal College of Rheumatologists and Ophthalmologists reviewed all of the literature in, 19, in the 1990s, it published in 1998, and then again in 2000, the uh, first 10 years of 2000, published in about 2006, and in both cases concluded that based on the available evidence, there was no, uh, no rationale for screening for Plaquenil retinopathy because one, it was very rare and didn't represent uh, prudent use of resources, and two, there was no way to reliably detect it at a level where you could do anything about it. And so the practice in the UK is not to screen. Uh, in the practice in the United States is to screen. So it, it sets up this tension. Um, both respected groups of ophthalmologists, they're looking at the same data set and they come to dramatically different conclusions. I think it, it should um, provide some humility for anyone who's uh, looking at the, the the evidence in making very dogmatic recommendations or taking too, um, too adamant a stand when, when you have this much latitude among respected and equally well-trained ophthalmologists. Michael Marmor wrote an editorial in the same, same issue uh, as your paper uh, call, calling into question some of your findings and conclusions. Can I get you to address... Uh, to, 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 first of all, just review what some of the criticisms were, and then, then if you can address the, 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 the points that he made. Yeah. Okay. So to, to begin with, um, Marmor um, disputes the interpretations of the ancillary tests that were presented in the two patients who were labeled by the clinicians as having retinopathy. And um, he uh, casts into doubt whether or not uh, they truly uh, could be interpreted as having retinopathy based on the available, tend to, uh, the available static automated perimetry and the quality of the recorded multifocal electroretinograms. And it gets uh, highly technical and probably not interesting to the listening audience to go into those, although I'd be happy to. But I will say this. It's been a year since... Uh, the data was submitted for publication, and we have additional data on these two patients. Follow-up fields and studies on these two patients, which shows they were taken off their Plaquenil, but shows progression of damage. So that, I mean, the proof is in the pudding, and I think that uh, longitudinal follow-up shows that Marmor's, um, Marmor's contention that the uh, data were misinterpreted is just wrong. Uh, second, he makes a statement that um, the ring ratios for multifocal ERG, uh, R1 over R2, is more sensitive. I, in, my, in my discussion, I mentioned three studies that are cited, and you can look them up, in which it shows that, um, to the contrary, amplitudes um, in particular hexagons uh, and in particular rings are more sensitive for picking up retinopathy than ring ratios, and in my own experience with with several hundred um, patients, that's also true. But but he just makes an assertion that that says, well, it's it's not true what what I've said in the paper. 
Marmer claims to have a preferred ideal body weight algorithm, and he gives it, but he offers no data to suggest that it's better than the other six that are in published use by ophthalmologists. Um, there's a good reason to believe that his recommended algorithm is probably not preferred. And I'll give an example. If you use the one that he's got in his editorial and you apply it to a population of patients who are screened for Plaquenil, you will find that 82% of the patients who are taking a 400 milligram per day dose will be labeled toxic. If you use the height and, and the weight table that he uses, you're going to have to call and recommend to the rheumatologist 82% of the time that the dosage be reduced, whereas if you use the the uh, table, the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute table that I have adopted after considering all of them, then you would only find 28% in a typical plaquenil-taking population that would be in a toxic range. So I don't think his choice is a practical one. Uh, he uses his choice to poo-poo um, my, uh, my twist on adjusted daily dosing which says that you have to look at actual body weight for the aesthetic patient. Uh, his table is, uh, allows you to be a lot higher for any given weight, and, and accordingly, you're going to have, using his table, you're going to have fewer patients who uh, have a, an actual body weight below ideal, and therefore, it won't be as big a problem if you use his weight, his table. But you're going to have the flip problem. That means that you're going to have a lot bigger problem in that, and that you're going to have more people who are in a toxic dose range. So it makes a difference which algorithm you use. And, you know, I've submitted a paper in which I compare the multiple ideal body weight algorithms that have, have been used and show the pros and cons. Um, so I think this is going to be illuminated in the near future in the published literature, but, but this is a preview for the interested uh, listener. And, and then fourth, uh, Marmer defends the revised guidelines uh, in his first paragraph in his editorial. But then later, if you look at the bullet points at the end of his editorial, he, he says that he often omits the baseline 10-2, that he almost never obtains a baseline MFERG, that he's considering deleting the patient examination and just using the 10-2 and a spectral domain OCT. Um, Dave, look, thank you very, very much for your time today. Oh, I'm happy to do it. I, I was glad you, you had an interest in it because it's a passion of mine and I believe it's something where we can really make a difference about an iatrogenic disease. David Browning is a retina specialist at the Charlotte Eye, Ear, Nose, and Throat Associates in Charlotte, North Carolina. His paper, Impact of the Revised American Academy of Ophthalmology Guidelines Regarding Hydroxychloroquine Screening on Actual Practice, appears in the March 2013 issue of the American Journal of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Browning or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.